Well, it's Palm Sunday this Sunday, and we'll look at the passage in Mark that uh, gives Palm Sunday its name. And I've been told in some of the bulletins it might say it's in Mark 1. It's actually in Mark 11, so there might be a misprint. The, the Word of God is infallible, but the bulletins are not. So I recently met a guy named Adam. He was a really nice guy, a musician, a photographer, a real gentle soul. A week or two later, around town, I saw him, and I said, oh, hi, Adam. He paused and said, what was that? And I said, hi, Adam. And he paused again as if he was trying to figure out how to say what he was thinking. And he looked at me and he said, I'm Travis. And I apologized and tried to strike up a conversation with him anyway. It turns out he was a completely different guy, not Adam. A really nice one, but I can tell you from first-hand experience that awkward introductions generate awkward conversations. (laughs) Then a week or two later, I saw Travis around town. And I said, hey, Travis. And he kind of looked at me funny and said, what was that? And I said, hey, Travis. And it all happened again. (laughs) It turned out the person I was talking to was Chris, not Travis. And he was also a really nice guy. Strangely enough, he even knew Travis. And so we ended up talking about Travis for a minute. They were friends. And, uh, but the, this conversation was even more awkward and didn't last very long. Now, I think I'm pretty, usually pretty decent. I think I'm usually pretty decent with names and faces. But at this point, I'm second-guessing everything I know. How can I confuse three different guys with each other? And even more importantly, how can three different guys look that much alike? (laughs) So earlier this week, I saw one of them. This time, however, I did not have the heart to attempt a conversation. I just kind of smiled and waved like this. (laughs) Waved from afar, and I asked myself, which one is that? Is that Adam or Travis or Chris? I'm ashamed to say I had no idea, actually. So I just smiled and waved. And by the way, if Adam, Travis, or Chris is here this morning, hi. (laughs) I'm really sorry. (laughs) I promise I'll get it at some point. I don't know. This morning we're going to look at the story from Mark 11. And uh, in it, the people of Jerusalem had the same problem with Jesus that I did with Adam, Travis, and or Chris. And that is that they looked at Jesus and they thought for sure that they recognized him. But it turns out they had the wrong guy. Let's read it. Mark uh, 11, beginning at verse 1. It's in your bulletins. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts. Then he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
And that's the story of Palm Sunday. You might have heard it before. Maybe it's familiar to you, but don't let its familiarity keep you from seeing how strange a story it is. I think especially that ending is really strange. You know, Mark ends this dramatic scene in verse 11 with nothing. Nothing happens. It's kind of, it says, he literally says, and it was kind of late, so Jesus kind of looked around, and then he went to Bethany. Remember where he started? He started in Bethany. He's kind of, he gets there, he looks around, he's like, oh, it's kind of late, and then he leaves. So it's a really odd story. What's going on here anyway? Let's begin by asking, what were the crowd's assumptions about Jesus? What expectations did they have when they saw Jesus riding the donkey coming into the city? One writer describes the buildup to the scene this way. This is how he writes about it. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you will know that to go from Jericho to Jerusalem involves a long, hard climb. Jericho is the lowest city on earth, over 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem, which is only about a dozen miles away, is nearly 3,000 feet above sea level. The road goes through a hot, dry desert all the way to the top of the Mount of Olives, at which point, quite suddenly, you have at the same time the first real vegetation and the first glorious sight of Jerusalem itself. Even if you were climbing that road every week on business, there would still be a sense of exhilaration, of delight, of relief when you got to the top and saw Jerusalem. Now add to that the excitement that the... Add to that sense of excitement the feeling that Jewish pilgrims coming south from Galilee would get every time they went up to Jerusalem for a festival, as they did several times a year. They were coming to the place where the living God had chosen to place his name and his presence. The place where, through the regular daily sacrifices, he assured Israel of forgiveness, of fellowship with himself, of hope for the future. They were coming there to celebrate the great Jewish stories of the past which were mostly stories of freedom and hope. They would meet with relatives and old friends. There would be singing, prayer, dancing, feasting. All that was implied by a pilgrim convoy coming up that steep hill from Jericho to Jerusalem. So you hear there the description of the sense of anticipation and excitement that came with just going to Jerusalem before Jesus ever gets on the donkey, right? Add to that, another layer of anticipation that had worked its way through the crowd during the festival. This crowd felt like the time was right to push back against Rome. You see, the Passover and other Jewish feasts over the years had often been the scene of clashes with the Roman authorities. Pilgrims came expecting to celebrate with their friends and family, but then all around the city, all through the streets, was an occupying army. Roman soldiers mixed into the festive crowd. The Roman authorities were notoriously antagonistic during these festivals. They feared that the the huge crowds would cause trouble, maybe riot, and so they used to bring in way more troops than usual, and they went out of their way to publicly demonstrate their power. There were quick arrests for potential troublemakers. They would clamp down on things they didn't like, and there were even stories of things that were outright hostile just to prove their authority. Historians from the era tell us about soldiers mooning the crowds. And even once a pig being sacrificed on the altar to intentionally desecrate it by the Roman authorities. 
So if you're headed up to Jerusalem with expectations of a joyful celebration with your friends and family, only to find the Roman occupying force was maybe especially large or especially rude this year, you would obviously be pretty upset. And that was the mood in Mark 11 when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. The crowd was hyped and agitated, and when they saw him coming, you heard how they reacted in the story. The donkey ride was a big event. It was a great royal processional entry. Jesus is being treated like a king. But why did they treat him that way? Doesn't that seem like an odd, odd reaction to you? What was it about Jesus riding on a donkey that caused them to react that way? I mean, when we see people riding on donkeys, we don't think, oh, look, that guy's very kingly, do we? I mean, what do we think of people who ride on donkeys? I mean, they're kind of comical, right? That happens in cartoons, right? Maybe, maybe somebody who rides a donkey is a little bit redneck, right? You know, like one of the prospectors who's out in the boonies for years and then finally drifts back into town. And you're like, whoa, look at that weird guy with the donkey, right? That's what we, that's what we tend to think. Hee-haw. That's not a royal sound to our ears, is it? I mean, when you hear that, you don't say, oh, man, there must be a king nearby. Hee-haw. That's not, I mean, that just, that doesn't, it's, so where, where, why would that seem royal to them? Where did these expectations come from? Let's see if we can figure that out. Here's what I think. I think, this is my, you know, this is my take on this. I think that the, the background to Mark 11 is this. In the Old Testament, there are two and only two major stories about a guy who rides a donkey. Now, donkeys are mentioned in lots of other places. Uh, people ride donkeys in other places, but there are two major stories that involve a man riding a donkey. So we're going to look at those two stories and see what we can learn. But before we do, don't forget, very important, Jesus sets this whole scene up. He's the one that initiates all this. You see, it wasn't the disciples' idea for Jesus to ride the donkey. They didn't say, oh, look, Jesus, there's a donkey. You could ride that. That would be a big deal. No, Jesus sends them to go and get the donkey so that he can ride on it. So in Mark 11, here's, my, here's what I'm thinking. You can see if, this, if you follow, if, if you think this, this works. In Mark 11, Jesus is choosing to reenact one of the two donkey riding stories of the Old Testament. He's choosing to reenact one of them. The question is, which one, right? What pattern is Jesus following here? So here you go. Here's the first story. In 1 Kings chapter 1, King David, who is Israel's greatest ever king and a man after God's own heart. He's very old and near to his death. And even though Solomon had already been designated as David's successor to the throne, another one of David's sons, a guy named Adonijah, decided that he would take advantage of David's aged frailty and claim the throne for himself. So this is what he did. He went and got, uh, sort of secretly got several, you could call them cabinet members of David's government to agree to support him in this. And then he went and got a bunch of his brothers, the fellow princes, to agree to support him in this. His claim to the throne. He got them all to, write, to sort of sign off on it. And then he organized a big parade through the streets of Jerusalem. And he rode in this great and mighty chariot, the most beautiful chariot in all the land, to announce that he was the new king. There's this big parade. Adonijah is the new king after David. And then he had a giant after party to celebrate. That's what, he, that's what he organized. Only that wasn't what was supposed to happen. The new king was supposed to be Solomon. 
And when David heard that what Adonijah had done, he said to Solomon's mother, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. And David ordered for there to be a rival parade. And he goes and he says, Take my donkey, my donkey, and put Solomon on it, and we're going to have a rival parade. And the fact that he's on David's donkey signifies that he's David's choice as his successor. And so Solomon begins the parade, and they go through the streets of Jerusalem, and the entire city erupts. The entire city erupts. There's trumpets blowing, flutes playing, people shouting so loudly that the walls of the city and even the ground, it says, shook with the noise. And the people of of Jerusalem are completely on Solomon's side. And so Adonijah was terrified. And he concedes the throne to Solomon. He says, okay, fine, you can be king. He literally says, you can be king, just please don't kill me. That's all I ask. And Solomon says, okay. Now notice notice the contrast. I think this is important. The true king, the true son of David, doesn't ride a chariot. He rides a donkey. You see, that's a big deal. There's a pattern established here in this story that is echoed later in our story, right? There's more we could say about this story from 1 Kings 1, the story of Solomon's parade, we could call it. But that's the gist of it for now. We should also note that 800 years after Solomon, but 200 years before Mark 11, a a Jewish general named Judas Maccabees reenacts Solomon's parade after he liberates the people of Israel by defeating the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes. And you can read about that in the apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees chapter 10. And as Judas Maccabees reenacts Solomon's parade, the people of Jerusalem at that time even cut the palm branches and put them down on the ground. And so you can see very clearly the echoes here in Mark 11. So it's obvious, I think, what Which of the Old Testament stories the people of Jerusalem in Mark 11 have in mind? They have Solomon's parade. They see Jesus as reenacting Solomon's parade. And it works, doesn't it? The true king rides a donkey, right? And like Solomon, they said he's going to oust the false king, Caesar. And like Judas Maccabees, he will liberate Israel. And so the people spread palm leaves in celebration. That's clearly what they have in mind, is Solomon's parade. But there's another well-known story in the Old Testament. One important story in which somebody rides a donkey. In Numbers chapters 22 to 24, we read of a strange, mysterious man named Balaam. Balaam was some kind of a prophet. He's not an Israelite. He lives out in the wilderness as the Israelites are coming through the wilderness at the time that Moses was leading Israel toward the promised land. And Balaam is this weird prophet out in the wilderness who pronounces blessings and curses on people. And whatever Balaam says always comes true. When he pronounces a blessing, when he pronounces a curse, it always comes true. So he's a very powerful kind of mystic prophet guy, right? And so Balak, the king of Moab, hears about Balaam and 
At this time, his people are absolutely, the people of Moab are terrified of the approaching Israelites. Israel has wiped out armies that had opposed them as they sweep across the wilderness. And next up in the path was Moab. And so Balak thought, this man, Balaam, just might be the key to defeating Israel. So he sends messengers to come and ask Balaam to come and curse Israel so that Israel can be defeated by Moab. Balaam asks God, should I go with the messengers to Balak, the king of Moab? And God tells Balaam, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Do only what I tell you. And so the next morning, Balaam gets on his donkey and he starts to ride back with the messengers to meet with Balak, king of Moab. And then a very strange thing happens, a really strange thing and unexpected. God gets mad at him for going. And you're like, wait a minute. God just said, go ahead and go. And then God gets mad at them, at him for going. What's going on here? Does he deserve God's wrath? It's not fair. Why would God do this to him? This, I'll say this kind of thing often happens in the Bible. The prophets often are um, a living, you could call it like a living object lesson. Uh, that God puts them through living parables to enact something that God wants to teach. And in this case, the pattern established in Balaam is Balaam doesn't deserve God's wrath, but he receives it anyway. That's the pattern. Then something even more strange happened as they're traveling toward Balak, king of Moab. Three times, an angel of death stands in the roadway with his sword out waiting to kill Balaam. And each time, Balaam can't see it. But the donkey can. And so the donkey turns away from the angel, thus saving Balaam's life. One time, the donkey turns away and presses so hard against a wall to escape the angel that the text says, Balaam's foot is crushed. His heel is crushed. Balaam three times unjustly beats his donkey for turning to the side and then rides on. Has no idea what's happened. And then after the third beating, the donkey turns its head and looks at him and talks to him. And he says, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? And then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel in the roadway with the sword in his hand waiting to kill him. And Balaam bows down before the angel so low that his face is in the dirt. And the angel speaks to Balaam and explains how the donkey has saved his life three times. The angel says, if she had not turned away, I certainly would have killed you by now. And Balaam responds, I have sinned. I did not realize that you were in the road. If, if you are displeased, I will go back. I can go back. I don't have to die. And the angel tells him, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. And then the story goes on. He meets with Balak. And three times Balak tries to get Balaam to curse Israel. Each time he offers him riches and wealth beyond his wildest dreams. If only he pronounces the curse that will undo Israel. And each time Balaam listens to God and then pronounces a blessing on Israel and not a curse. Three times. And Balak gets frustrated and, and he's about to give up and walk away. But Balaam has one more prophecy. And he says to Balak, I see him, but not now. 
I behold him, but not yet near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. And that's it. That's the end of the story. There you go. As a matter of fact, in, uh, it's really abrupt, you know. In verse uh, 20, 25 of chapter 24, it says, Then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went his own way. And that's the end of it. It's kind of abrupt. So there you go. Those are the two donkey stories. You've got the parade of Solomon, and you've got the ride of Balaam. Jesus is choosing in Mark 11 to reenact one of them. But which one did he have in mind? You see? We know which one the crowd has in mind. That's obvious. But what was Jesus thinking when he got on the donkey and he began to ride? Which one was he reenacting? And the answer is both of them. Jesus is fulfilling both of them, reenacting both of them at once. Listen. The true king, the true son of David, is in fact on that day riding on a donkey. He had most definitely come to Jerusalem for the purpose of ousting the false king. He is most definitely going to liberate his people. That much the crowd could see, and thus the cheering in the branches. But even though they could see that much, they were confused about who Jesus is and what he was there to do. They thought that their greatest enemy was Caesar. They thought that their nation and their feast had been tainted by something from the outside coming in and ruining everything. But Jesus came to oust, first and foremost, the false kings within. How could he do it? How is Jesus going to defeat the false kings and purge them all away and liberate Israel? Jesus does it by becoming Balaam. At God's command and speaking and doing only what God told him, Jesus rode his donkey toward the stronghold of the enemy king. Look how humble he is. Mark says in in there that he, he wasn't even riding a donkey. He was riding a colt. He was riding a baby donkey. And it was one that had been unridden before, and so it would be skittish about being ridden and the crowd noise and all this stuff. So here's Jesus riding this small humble, skittish sort of animal. Imagine Jesus' feet nearly dragging on the ground on this tiny colt. You see, here's how it works. Adonijah rode the greatest chariot in the land. Solomon rides a donkey. Jesus rides uh, an antsy young colt. You see, God had told him to go. But Jesus knew that if he went, the wrath of God would be poured out to him on him even though he didn't deserve it just like Balaam Jesus knew what was ahead unlike Balaam Jesus knew that the angel of death was in the roadway ahead of him and yet he went anyway sword out ready to kill ahead of him but Jesus stayed on the donkey and rode it forward toward the wrath of God and this time This time, the donkey didn't turn away and save him. Like Balaam, Jesus' heel was crushed. But in doing this, he became the scepter of Israel that crushed the head of Moab and every other false nation and false king who wanted to enslave 
and destroy the people of God. That was what Jesus came to do. In the events of that first Easter week, beginning at Palm Sunday today, and extending on through Easter Sunday, he established himself as the true king, as the true son of David, and he did it by becoming the true Balaam. It's both. And only Jesus could do that. Only he could do both. The bad news is that the crowds were very disappointed. Jesus didn't do what people wanted him to do. Jesus didn't lead a revolution against Caesar as they had hoped. So they were disappointed. What they missed was that Jesus was doing something greater. He freed his people from sin and death by becoming sin and death in their place. One writer said it this way, the only possible way for him to fulfill their deepest desires was to say no to their immediate ones. And honestly, the truth is, if we're honest, we're very like that crowd. We say, hooray, here comes Jesus. He's going to fix, fill in the blank, right? And then when Jesus arrives, he goes to work on something completely different than you had in mind. And how do we react to that? We're upset. We're disappointed. Jesus, I thought you were going to do this. Why aren't, you, why aren't you doing the thing that I thought you were coming here to do? Maybe we even think about saying, crucify him. I don't want him. I want a new, I want a new savior. But listen, maybe the only possible way for Jesus to fulfill your deepest desires is to say no to your immediate one just like the crowd that day. Well, the good news is that even though the crowd was confused about who Jesus was and what he was doing, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was, in fact, what they thought it was. It was the moment they'd all been waiting for. It just didn't look like they expected it to. It was the very moment when salvation dawned. The cheerful hosannas and the palm branches were justified just not for the reasons they expected. It was all true, even though they didn't recognize it. Mark 11 teaches us that we can, that we must, we must learn to trust Jesus. He knows what he's doing. And to save his people, he was willing to humble himself to death, even death on a cross. Learning to trust him even when he doesn't do what we expect, takes wisdom to see, faith to believe, and humility to submit to his way of doing things and not to our own. And so we pray, now, here, in this place, and then especially over the course of this week, through Good Friday, through Easter, Spirit of God, grant us wisdom to see faith to believe and humility to submit to your way of doing things and not to our own. Amen.